Welcome to the podcast, 10 Solutions for a Feminist Climate Resilient Recovery. I am Maria Lee from the global network, WOCAN, Women Organizing for Change in Agriculture and Natural Resource Management. The current global crisis presents a unique opportunity to put climate resilience at the center of the conversation around what is important and how to build a better future for all. The solutions to build resilience to crisis are linked to the preservation of our Earth's resources and the stewardship of these. In this podcast series, we will be sharing 10 solutions for a climate resilient post-recovery through conversations with international thought leaders. Joining me today on this podcast is Dibya Devi Gurung, a core associate of WOCAN. Dibya holds a master's degree in biological science and has more than 24 years of professional experience in integrating gender and social inclusion issues in community-based natural resource management, agriculture, and climate change. She has worked and continues to work with various grassroots organizations, as well as international donor agencies and governments in Nepal and across Asia, conducting gender analysis and supporting the integration of gender in national strategies, plans, and programs. Dibia was also nominated by the Ministry of Forests and Environment of Nepal as a member of the Red Implementation Coordination Committee. Good morning, Dibia. Good morning, Maria. I'm really delighted, Dibia, to, to have this conversation with you today about social safety nets and women's organizations. When we talk about social safety nets, we often refer to formal programs developed by governments and organizations to reduce poverty and inequalities. They are also used as a critical tool to mitigate the impact of crisis, including this one, the COVID-19 pandemic, but with a challenge of reaching the most vulnerable. And according to the Asian Development Bank, in low-income Asian economies, for example, less than one in five are registered for government safety net programs. But there are other more informal forms of social safety nets which are also essential, for example, women's organizations. So, Divya, you have long been engaged with building up and strengthening women's organizations. Can you share with us how you see these organizations are playing this role as social safety nets? Okay. Thank you, Maria, for this very important question. Uh, before I uh, go into explaining the role of this women's safety net, I would like to say that, uh, I mean, also globally and particularly in the case of Nepal, all the rural structures, the rural government structures are mostly um, held by very, very, very powerful people, powerful elite groups, or may it be political leaders or political community leaders. It's the whole power structure. And these are the structures who recognize and who um, authorize who the poor are, who should get the safety nets, how should they get it, who should be involved in distributing it, 
and all these kinds of things. Okay, so it's you have to understand before we talk of safety nets how the whole structure of the distribution of these safety nets are organized around, particularly in uh, you know developing countries like Nepal. Mm-hmm. So in this case, what happens is uh, they are hardly challenged and people hardly go to negotiate. So most of the safety net that gets distributed and that gets uh, that reaches the people are the ones usually who are not supposed to get it, you know. So usually, even if there are poorer ones who get it, the needy ones, they are usually are associated with these power structures. So the whole thing of governance is there. So in these cases, what I have seen from my experience and working with Woken and doing a lot of leadership training and organizing this women's group, what we have seen is these women's groups, uh, when we have organized them, they are so powerful I mean, if they are organized well, and with organized well meaning with trainings, with exposure, with they coming together and working together, you know, and they being given responsibilities, what happens is they play the role of negotiating and challenging these power structures. Sometimes if they are uh, strong enough, they challenge, but if not, they negotiate. And in cases in my country, in places where there are powerful, really organized women groups, they have been able to influence and they have been able to help the local uh, governments and the local committees to plan and to distribute. The other example I want to give you is uh, during earthquake, which Nepal, like it was more than eight point uh, something hectares. So uh, which Nepal was like really, really, we were in really deep, uh, you know, like crisis that time. So everyone were helping like government, the government's network could not reach everybody. So individually, like NGOs, donor agencies, you know, relief agencies, everyone were helping. So I was involved in one of the villages where Walken had uh, trained a lot of women's groups. So I was engaged, you know, uh, privately for this relief response right after the earthquake because everyone had to go and help, you know. And what, what I was so impressed was the, this group which we had trained, they had organized themselves so well. They had every like category of people from their 95 households, they were there. They knew exactly whose house was really destroyed, who needed exact support, what kind of support, because everyone were giving rice and oil and salt. And then that was not the help they needed. The help that they needed was water tanks, you know, medicine to purify water, medicines for diarrhea and, uh, you know, headaches. They needed blankets. They needed corrugated sheets for roofing. Uh, Because it was so wet, they needed uh, a mattresses which had plastics over it so that the water wouldn't seep. So this village where the women were organized, you know what they had done? They had put everything detailed in list. So the responders who went there, and everyone knew they had collected the village people in one group and everyone knew who and and it was so you know justified so that no one could come and say that i didn't get or you got kind of thing you know so it was so impressive and then they also could go and mobilize other because because this village was so well structured it was so easy for them to mobilize more resources because they knew that you know there was no conflict there people who needed the most they got it so I mean, these are the few examples I can give you the power and the role of women's organizations that, uh, you know, uh, in, in climate, in COVID crisis, in any kind of crisis, or even in developing in general, as I said. Mm-hmm. No, these are really good examples that show how women's organizations are 
the way to make those social safety net programs more efficient and respond in a way to that challenge of how you reach the most vulnerable. So I think these are really good examples. How can those women organizations also contribute to climate resilience beyond the mitigating the social impact of crisis? First and foremost, in terms of climate resilience, uh, what we have to understand is in most of the South, uh, you know, South Asian rural areas, men migrate for work. Okay, so uh, the ones who are left behind, the economically active people, are mostly women. I mean, women also migrate, but majority of them are there. So, and there are children and older people. But the one who is economically active and who's really responsible for managing resources, whether it's natural resources or household resources or your care, you know, uh, economy or whatever, it is the women. They are the force there, you know. So in other words, I always say they are the day-to-day -day managers, you know, who are engaged on a daily basis, you know. So because they are engaged on a daily basis, because they are there permanently or if not permanently for a longer period of time in the villages, they know the resources well, they know the issues well, they know how to manage well, and they are also the ones who are uh, knowledgeable at the same time, who are also affected the most. If you go with, for example, kind of climate responsive uh, kind of seeds or technologies or water systems, you know, the adoption of these is very important. So these women, if they are convinced and if they have, if it is useful for them and if they are engaged in building these technologies and inputs, they will be the ones who will adopt and use it better. So in that way, they will also be contributing in making the external services very effective, climate-related, one thing. The other thing is because they have knowledge on this, even if the external services or external support technologies that, they, that goes in to support these uh, people to make them climate resilient, they can give good advice, you know, or they can give good uh, inputs and say, okay, this works, this doesn't work. This is what we need. This is what we don't need this is not useful so in in these ways uh, they can become uh, really like contributors in making not only themselves resilient their household but also the whole community resilient mm -hmm. and and my understanding is that the fact that they will group into small informal or formal organization really makes a difference in terms of also sharing information accessing information or good practices correct yeah, exactly. Because uh, in if you go to in my country, every villages have women's group. Okay, either in the form of agriculture, mothers group, sisters group, whatever group we call, and then uh, and they always most of the time uh, we have a long history of development, so they are working organized groups. So when these women's are organized, um, as I said, any work they do. Uh, it becomes effective because of the networks, you know, uh, there's networks, are, uh, uh, if, if it is a good women's group, that networks are so strong, any technology or any, uh, you know, uh, even problems that comes in through climate change or anything, they will be the more, most effective way because one thing is they can inform people and work together. The other thing is they can implement it. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so information channels, but also power of negotiation as a collective. So these are really important ways. Yeah. 
yeah, negotiation, yeah, negotiation, use of the information channels, using their networks, you know, uh, and also not only that, also giving them, you know, giving information and inputs on what works and what doesn't. Now, in a recent article, I wanted to share with you the the president of the Global Fund for Women was calling for supporting local organizations and reminding that funding for local organization is approximately 1% of all funding and even less for women-led organizations. So based on what we just talked about, you know, and all the added value of the role of women's organization, in your views, what type of support do these organizations need to assure their sustainability? First and foremost, of course, the fund, you said, I, I, because you asked and started with the fund question, it's very important to invest on uh, women's organization for the very reason I told you, you know. And, uh, and even in my country, it's not only globally, in my country, if you see the ward level budget, less than 1%, I think, goes for these women's you know, issues. And even though that money which goes there uh, is not used, you know, properly. First and foremost, you have to recognize these women's organizations, women's uh, institutions, locally, nationally, and globally, as a group who can contribute in climate resilience effectively. And the other thing is, when we say investment, we also have to understand how you invest. So when we say investment, investment has to be very strategic, has to be need-based, which is, you know, uh, as in the case of other technical, uh, you know, sectors and agencies, when we are talking about women's agencies, the degree, uh, the depth of, you know, investment and understanding has to be also greater. Mm. So, so it's about funding and it's about appropriate activities that need to be included in the program. Yeah, and then I want to add in one other, another thing out here is that's one big, big bulk on women's organizations and, you know, um, how to support and how to, like, you know, uh, make them sustainable and effective, you know. So it's very important for us, uh, you know, planning planners and developers and people working on gender and people working on development to understand the intersectionality of these. So the other message I really strongly want to give is it's very important to see even within the organization, which kind of organization or even if these organizations, how are they addressing this you know, issue of intersectionality? In a nutshell, I would say program, we have to have actions, as I said, climate actions, and those actions has to be based on the needs, priorities, and consultations, and all of these women, not only women, but which women and which men, I said again, intersectionality has to be there, and a whole lot of thing, investment on institutions, looking with insights to make them, you know, understand, uh, you know, how to be resilient, and how to engage women also, so that kind of thing. Mm. Yeah, and I think actually maybe this is part of the response to, to my next question. You know, this podcast calls for a, a feminist approach to climate resilience. And so I wanted to ask you what it means for you to take a feminist approach. And I think some of the elements that you just mentioned are there, but maybe you want to add 
some other points to 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 this uh, question in a very general sense which everyone understands which is also a very broad word is i think we have to be very inclusive you know so a lot of investment has to be there in order to have a feminist approach and one when i say feminist approach uh people might say why you need a feminist approach for climate change for the reasons as i said before how climate is affecting uh, you know uh, people how climate is affecting the most vulnerable and when we dig out who the most vulnerable are are women poor women even within poor the highly marginalized groups and ethnicities there are they mm. so it's really about a transformational process not only about type of actions and activities but is also kind of like rethinking power structures and and going um, being a little bit more ambitious yeah maybe to conclude this uh, conversation i wanted and based on what we, you shared with us what would be your call to action is there any specific call to action that you would like to send out to to the world i think uh, investment on women's organization at local national and global levels i think uh this is very important next thing is work directly with women's organizations and group at all these three levels also you know when you channel through other sources you know uh, and other uh institutions in between um it's there are chances that when it reaches their group in terms of resources in terms of everything everything gets diluted by the time it goes there so i think direct act, you know access and direct working with these groups are very important i think promotion of local products which are which we can which can engage a, a large number of women and large number of marginalized groups promoting local markets promoting local leaderships and uh, strengthening uh, and organizing them locally so that they can become strong at the local level and not dependent too much you know mm so it's really to put the local women and local organization at the core of of those responses so that's making it stronger and self reliant there yeah mm. well thank you very much again dibia for accepting this invitation thank you you've been listening to okan podcast and solutions for a feminist climate resilient recovery. If you want to know more about Wokan's activities, please go to www.wokan.org. You can also follow us on Twitter, Facebook, and LinkedIn.